Hello and welcome to the Clipper Chance podcast. My name is Simon Crown. Uh, in this podcast series, our experts from around the firm will be discussing pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. This is the fifth in our Clifford Chance on Credit podcast series, where we look at uh, topical issues uh, with a focus uh, on the buy side market. Uh, the focus of today's session is structured finance for the real economy. And we're fortunate enough to be joined by three of my partners, uh, Oliver Cronat from our Frankfurt office, Jessica Littlewood, and Simeon Radcliffe from our London office. So if we can start um, by uh, talking about, um, uh, against the backdrop of the real economy, impacted as it, as it, as it is by uh, COVID, um, let's move to look, about, uh, to look at the market for asset-backed securities and how that interacts with um, the, the real economy. And that's really the, the thrust of things to, today. But before we start, um, can we have a look um, briefly at how those markets are performing, um, given everything that's going on? Um, so should we start with trade receivables? Uh, and, and Simeon, can you first of all give us a bit of a, a, a basic introduction to, to what we're talking about? Um, and then if you can talk about sort of uh, how the market is performing at the moment. Sure, Simon. Uh, so the, the important word is asset. And what is, the, what is the asset in the context of a trade receivable? Well, quite simply, it's the debt that arises when the producer of a good or the provider of a service issues an invoice. Um, and of course, that applies to virtually every business. It is the essence of business that invoices are issued for services rendered or goods provided. And the asset-backed market in that context is about the monetization of these, what we call, receivables. And we want to talk a bit about how the, the market for that monetization is, is at the moment. It's incredibly vibrant. Um, we act for a considerable number of banks who arrange these financings, the originators who are the industrial entities who issue these invoices, as well as other investors in the, the, the product. And these investors range from other banks, insurance companies, and importantly and increasingly funds. Um, we're, we're typically seeing these transactions structured on a private basis, whereby the originator typically sells the receivables that it um, that arise from um, its business into an SPV and that then that SPV is then financed by a syndicate comprising those those participants I, I mentioned earlier in this market working capital has never been more important and that perhaps is the the key explanation behind the vibrancy of of the market. Simon, it's perhaps perhaps worth mentioning where we particularly see funds in, in, in this sector. Um, we're seeing them in, I would say, two distinct um, areas. First, as in particular mezzanine financiers. Um, so in other words, the typical structure of yesteryear where we perhaps just saw a senior tranche of financing provided by a bank or a syndicate of banks with junior financing it, taking the form of credit enhancement into the structure being provided by the originator. 
is being flexed um, to create a mezzanine tranche um, in which we're seeing very significant interest from um, from, our, from our fund clients. Um, and as I say, that's 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 been a real trend over the last two years. It's not COVID-related, but it's certainly the pace of that interest has increased um, during during these during these last few months. The second area um, where we're seeing increasing interest and activity has been in the in the sphere of our fund clients looking for alternative means with which to finance their portfolio. Uh, their portfolio companies and change receivables based finance has been w w one one of the key tools that they've that they've been looking at. Oliver, would you would you like to add anything to, to the remarks you just made? No, I uh, <clears throat> thanks, Simon, and I I totally agree. I mean, the mezzanine finance which is provided by funds also has a um, a very positive effect on those who want to obtain the financing. We call them originators or sellers of the receivables because normally you see mezzanine finance coming from a fund or, or another third party in transactions where um, the originators seek to obtain off-balance sheet treatment for the receivables they are selling. And this is much more easier if you have a fund or another third party providing that external mezzanine finance. So this is something I totally agree we see more more often. I also agree that actually the demand for these straight receivable financings on the borrower originator side has not has not decreased uh, during COVID. There has been no no negative effect on that. Indeed, uh, the financing demands are, are uh, rather increasing than decreasing. Um, on the side of the refinancing, of course, there, there were some, some effects on uh, a part of these transactions are financed through the ABCP conduits um, of uh, sponsoring banks. So what are these? These are securitization platforms um, which can you know, um, absorb and buy receivables from, from different originators. And in order to finance that purchase, they will issue short-term um, commercial paper. Um, this short-term commercial papers, at least in the euro area, not uh, um, is it, not a it's not something the ECB would buy. Accordingly, when there were the first uh, first signs of the the, the lockdown and the, and the COVID crisis, there was a dip in the market, and and sponsors found it for an intermediate time a little bit difficult um, to find investors on on their end. But that has uh, recovered in the meantime, and actually was pitched by uh, banks providing that financing themselves. Yeah. Oliver, you, you, the, the point you make about off-balance sheet treatment is, is a really important one, and it may be that um, listeners to this podcast may want to contact us um, separately to discuss it. Um, it's certainly one of the really important other reasons why uh, originators um, look to undertake these forms of financing is to obtain off-balance sheet treatment um, for their receivables. We've we've seen quite a significant amount of activity in that area, but but perhaps one 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 important and relevant point I should add is that this market is generally the the trade receivables financing market is generally the preserve of sub-investment grade or non-investment or non-rated companies, but where we do see um, rated entities quite often is when off-balance sheet treatment is, is being sought. And as, as you pointed out, Oliver, um, ob obtaining 
mezzanine finance can sometimes be used as a tool to obtain that off balance sheet treatment. There are other methods as well, of course, insurance and and so on. Some, something perhaps that, that listeners might want to take up with us separately. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thanks, thanks both. And um, now let's hear from Jessica because we always want we also want to talk about. Uh, the synthetic market uh, as well. Now we're going to drill down into in, into this in some detail later in the podcast, Jessica. But what's you know if, if you could briefly briefly define it and uh, and take the temperature of the market, please. Yes, of course. Um, so synthetics, I think, have a, a somewhat off-putting title. Um, it all sounds very complicated, and actually, I think a, a better term is perhaps risk transfer. And what we mean by that is that. Typically, banks look to offload the risk of loans that they have made in various um, uh, sectors, but let's focus here on the SME space, um, and that those borrowers don't repay the loans, and that's the risk that they hold on their balance sheet. And without wanting to get down into sort of the technical details of regulatory capital, they're required to hold capital against that risk. Um, That does create a natural limit on the amount of lending that they are able to provide because they are capital constrained. Um, And the focus really on many of these synthetic transactions is to mitigate that capital, mitigate the risk of those borrowers not repaying the loans and therefore enabling banks to carry on lending. And and you can see the natural segue there into what we call the real economy. Um, If you have effectively offloaded your risk to third parties in the market, and that's where we bring in our financial investor clients, because many of the, the investors in this market who are happy to take that risk are our fund clients, are our financial investor clients. But you can see that if you can offload that risk, you free up your balance sheet to carry on lending and drive, um, drive those businesses forward. In terms of what we're seeing in the market, I have to say, um, when we first went into lockdown at the beginnings of the COVID pandemic, um, I suppose many people thought, oh gosh, will this market still continue? Are people going to still want to take the riskiest slice, the most risky portion um, of these portfolios? Um, But interestingly, the market has actually been quite buoyant. We've seen um, uh, many uh, banks come to market with transactions and and a, a significant amount of investor appetite. Um, so I think that shows the robustness of this sector, um, and we see no signs of that, that slowing down. Um, we'll talk in more detail about what changes we have seen uh, later on in this podcast, but, but broadly, we're still seeing the market energized um, and, and, and continuing. Okay, super. Thanks, Jessica. So let's, let's move on to the next topic. Um, so we've sort of covered the definitional bit, taking the temperature of the markets, but let's let's uh, have some more detail on particular asset classes and their interaction with the real economy. Let's start somewhere. Let's start with um, trade receivables and assuming that this uh, involves many different types of products. So um, let's let's have an overview of the market. Simeon, do you want to kick us off on that? Yeah, sure. Um... So it really breaks down into four or five different means of finance. Um, I'll, I'll quickly summarise them, Simon, and then, then perhaps just touch on, on them in a wee bit more depth. There's factoring, supply chain finance, which is sometimes known as reverse factoring, asset-based lending, and then um, final, finally securitisation. And generally, you, you'd expect to see that there's a gradation really of use of these techniques ranging from smaller 
corporates utilising factoring, whereas securitisation at the other end of the spectrum is the preserve almost exclusively of, of, of large corporates because a securitisation transaction is generally more complex to, to, put, in, to, put, in, to put in place. Um, and, and similarly, the complexity of these transactions increases as you go up that scale. Um, let me just just touch briefly on what each of these species of transaction are, though probably they're pretty well known to many, many listeners. Factoring, the simple sale of receivables, sometimes with recourse back to the seller, not always, a very ancient technique um, of financing going, going back literally to Babylonian days. Um, thousands of years ago. Supply chain finance is a more modern rendition of factoring. This is the kind of transaction where you typically have a large corporate, an investment grade credit typically, which has arranged finance for its perhaps hundreds or thousands of, of suppliers. It's called reverse factoring because the large corporate who is the debtor under the transaction is arranging for its suppliers to factor receivables owed by it. As I say, this sometimes is called supply chain financing. Then we have asset-based lending. Asset-based lending is typically a transaction where the loan, the financing is with full recourse to the borrower, but it's secured in a very particular and carefully structured and diligenced way on the receivables. And then finally, we have securitization, um, which, which speaks for itself, despite perhaps being the most complex of this subject, uh, of, of, of these kinds of financings, it perhaps speaks for itself. Typically, tranched finance is raised, secured on a pool of receivables, and um, in respect of which there is no meaningful recourse back, back, back to the originator. The complexity in each of these transactions and where, where we as a firm become closely involved is almost invariably in the context of the number and type of jurisdictions involved. And there are, that, the, the essence of international business is, of course, the multi-jurisdictionality of it. And it's there that the important structuring issues arise around um, how to include in a way that is um, enforceable rights against receivables owed from a debtor, say, in one jurisdiction to a creditor in another, and to include those assets into, um, in, 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 into a structure of integrity. Oliver, would you, would you like to add anything to that? I just, just one little thing. Isn't, isn't it also that uh, the products we have covered, so factoring and securitization, are I mean, they, they all have their meaning. Factoring is for small enterprises, probably, and securitization is the preview of, of large corporates. But nonetheless, there's a, a fair amount of competition. So you can imagine, you know, a factoring provider pitching for the same transaction as a, uh, as a, as a securitization bank or a bank offering securitization to one of their clients. So there's a, a, fair, a fair amount of, of overlay. And I totally agree that in securitization, we have a much closer look on, on the legal side than, than you probably have in factoring. But 
Factoring also was quite interesting in the last couple of years. It was, was picking up also with larger corporates because actually what we've discussed before, the off-balance sheet treatment is something which is slightly easier uh, to achieve in factoring, and securitization can do the, the same trick, but it's, it's, it's more complex if you want to do it. But, yeah, there's, um, I mean, these products are really competing um, um, against each other. And also supply chain finance is, is quite interesting because it's a, it's a different perspective. Whilst on securitization and factoring, you're looking at the owner of the receivables. He's initiating the transaction. He wants to obtain the financing. Uh, with supply chain finance, it's, uh, that's why it's called reverse factoring also sometimes. It's, it's just the other way around. You are, you're, you're looking at a large corporate who is receiving supplies or incoming services um, from his service providers and you know he's basically wants to manage that 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 process a little bit more easy and obtain some some funding benefits there as well and um, this can be also some sometimes a, a competition and, and I just recently had a securitization transaction which was dismantled because supply chain finance was the solution uh, proposed by by actually the largest debtor in the portfolio Great. Um, thanks, Oliver. And so, so moving on, let's let's put ourselves in the shoes of the the, the owner, let's say, of the of the portfolio company, looking for uh, uh, some uh, an alternative means of of financing. So, in respect of the transactions that you you've just described, you know, what what are the what's the practical considerations? You know, where do you come from on this? Are, are they you know, are they easy to, to implement? You know, what are the sort of um, issues that you would be raising with the client? Yeah, indeed, it's. It's. Um, I think it's. If you compare it to a, a normal loan financing, then probably asset-based financing becomes more complex because you are, in most of the cases, and especially in securitization, but also in factoring, you are looking at, for your credit perspective, on the underlying. Um, receivables portfolio, and that brings along due diligence in the first place. You want to see how the originator is dealing um, with the receivables. Um, so how is his uh, credit and collection policy? You want to see how these receivables perform. How has the performance been in the last five to six years, for example? Like this, you can basically see how high default ratios are, dilution risks, how they can be assessed. And then what Simon has already mentioned, and this is probably the core of the uh, legal side of these uh, transactions, is multi-jurisdictional. Um, although in Europe there's uh, the Rome regulation um, ideally providing for a unique uh, uh, um, governing law when it comes to the transfer of receivables, reality, reality is slightly different. And you still have to see whether a French law receivable is transferred in accordance with French law, and the same applies to a Belgian and English and and and, and a German law receivable. Um, then the second core, actually, of complexity is, uh, but that's also a legal thing, is we want to achieve a true sale, a so-called true sale in these transactions. And what does true sale actually mean? True sale from a legal perspective means that the receivables are sold to the purchaser in a way that upon insolvency of the originator, they are beyond the reach of the insolvency administrator. And here again, you have different uh, jurisdictional um, uh, perspectives to look after because uh, the originator jurisdictions have their own insolvency laws and they are to some extent harmonized, but not, not fully. Yeah, so these are probably the main things um, adding to complexity, but it's also worthwhile mentioning uh, that 
there are only very few points you cannot tackle and very few problems you cannot solve in a in a transaction like this. Yeah. Timon, what do you think? I, I, I agree. Um, I'll, I'll just perhaps add one thing um, and, and focus focusing on one really important additional area. And this area has it's been clear to financiers for a long time, but it really has emerged as an area of importance um, over the last few years as we've worked on a number of um, insolvencies of originators. Um, and in particular, acting often for financiers of these transactions, identifying what the key path to uh, salvation is in terms of recovering the, the, the finance outlaid. And the single key point has been control over cash. We've not for a very long time seen a transaction where the receivables that have been sold into the transaction have actually been enforced against the debtor by the SPV or the financing structure. Rather, the, the, the way in which these transactions have been resolved has been by way of the financier gaining immediate, excellent control over cash. And so that's why when approaching a transaction like this, whether you're an originator, um, a portfolio company, for example, looking to obtain finance, or indeed whether you're looking to finance a transaction like this, the key thing to focus on, because it really matters in terms of putting the deal together, is what control of a cash can be offered. And that can take different guises according to the complexity of the existing corporate and banking arrangements. So it's somewhat more difficult to offer up as an originator if you have cash pooling arrangements in place. Um, also more difficult to offer up if you are unwilling to notify obligors that the receivables have been sold and that they should pay into uh, a, a different account. Um, somewhat easier to offer up if the accounts are in England and the originator is in England or another jurisdiction that recognises trusts, um, in which case you can create a trust over the relevant account into which the cash is coming and ensure that the um, financing structure has excellent insolvency-proof um, recourse to that cash. So getting a good handle on how cash is collected and what control can be offered over it is a really important preliminary matter for any, any one of these financing structures. Then probably, if I if I may add on on, on this one, Simeon, I think what the result is. So, so we talk about complexity, and it's a lot of work getting getting these deals going. But then actually, if if you do everything right, um, experience shows that even if um, the so-called borrower or originator who you have forwarded the money to falls insolvent, you can recover yeah. your monies. Yeah. yeah. So we had a lot of uh, a couple of insolvency um, proceedings. We were we were taking part and representing clients who were acting on the purchasing side, and we, we hardly lost a, a euro or, or, or a cent on these. It's a lot of work to do the workout, but you are in a much favorable position compared uh, to even to secured normal secured lenders, and not talking about unsecured lenders. And this is a little bit of the magic in this product, I would say. Extremely agreed. Great. Okay. Thanks, both. So let's 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 move on now to to to, to Jessica so for some more uh, detail in respect of synthetics or, or, or risk transfer products. 
Um, and as, as has already been mentioned, some of the techniques that, uh, that Oliver and Simon have been talking about are really the preserve of uh, sort of larger, uh, larger players. Um, and I mean, Jessica, did you want to start with saying sort of what these synthetic or risk transfer techniques, what they enable banks to keep on financing, which is obviously particularly relevant at this stage in the economic cycle? Do you, do you, want, do you want to start with that before you take us off yes, into, of into, into risk transfer? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, for the purposes of what we're looking at on this podcast today, um, you, d you definitely see um, the synthetics looking at corporate lending. And what I mean by that is corporate lending right from large corporates, um, the sorts that uh, Simeon and Oliver have been discussing, right down to very small SMEs. Um, and one of the things about the synthetic techniques is it's extremely flexible. To be honest, you can use the synthetic techniques almost irrespective of what your underlying portfolio is. So whether you have a portfolio of large corporate loans, maybe like revolving facilities, right down to uh, you know, a term loan to a small SME, uh, the transaction documents look the same. Um, and uh, that's actually very important um, for banks because it enables them to use this technique um, and, and it creates sort of economies of scale because you can repeat it. But why do they want to use this, and why does this, 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 this fuel the real economy? Well, the techniques that um, Simeon and Oliver have been discussing really are more used by large, sophisticated corporates um, and in, in that space. Whereas for many smaller businesses, they still get their financing from banks. Um, and those banks, as I mentioned earlier, are, have lived with a capital constraint. Um, they are subject to regulation, which requires them to hold capital against the risks and the exposures that they bring onto their balance sheet. And that creates a natural limit as to the amount of lending that they can uh, carry out. Um, and particularly if you're lending to SMEs, um, the amount of capital that you have to hold against that lending is quite significant. And again, that creates this natural cap on the amount of lending that banks can do. Um, and all of us have probably read the newspapers where you can see the political impetus for banks to, and it's a well-used phrase, fund the real economy. Um, but, they, but they, as a result of their capital requirements, there is a limit on how much they can do that. And this is where the synthetic technology comes in, um, because it allows them to move the risk of those portfolios of loans to other people, and what we're looking at here is, is, is largely um, financial investors. And by doing that, they reduce their capital requirements and can carry on lending. This has actually become very political within the EU, uh, particularly post-COVID. Um, and I'm going to stray into uh, the territory of regulation, which I know, Simon, is, is close to your heart. But if, if all of the listeners will give me uh, a little bit of leeway, I'm just going to talk very briefly about regulation. Um, I think the, there was a piece of legislation that was introduced um, called the Securitization securitization regulation into uh, European law. Um, and that uh, completely changed the way securitization, not completely changed, it changed the way securitization was regulated. It also came um, with this thing called STS. Now, STS was sort of branded good securitization. Um, and one of the benefits of STS was it allowed banks 
to hold less capital against exposures to securitization. Now, STS, when it was originally brought in, only looked at cash securitizations and synthetics were excluded. Um, and certainly the synthetic market um, was very keen for STS to be extended to synthetic trades. And post-COVID, what we saw was a lot of legislative impetus behind doing that. And we saw a fast-track process whereby STS for synthetics has been moved through the European legislative process. And we're very much at the end, the tail end of this process with text before Parliament. And all signs are that we will soon get STS synthetics through the legislative process and on the statute books. Now, why is that relevant for this audience? I think that's relevant for this audience because I think next year you would expect to see quite a sharp uptake in synthetic securitization, um, uh, which use the STS label and therefore get the better better capital benefits. So I think what we're going to see next year is greater volume. And again, going back to the regulatory and political impetus behind that, the hope behind that greater uh, synthetic volume is that you will see that funding the real economy and banks being able to and willing to lend to the real economy, lend to those SMEs, and frankly, all the way up to the large corporates to keep the liquidity going. One other observation I'd make about the synthetic market, and I was listening to Simeon and Oliver thinking, gosh, you're making my, my case for me here. Synthetic technology, although it has a not simple name, is actually very, very simple. And all of the issues that Simeon and Oliver were talking about in terms of having to look at the governing law and creating truth sale, none of those apply in the context of the synthetic because you are actually not moving assets, all of those assets remain on balance sheet. And all you're really trying to do is to mitigate the risk of those. I always refer to this, it's very easy to conceptualize this like insurance. It's like buying insurance on the risk that your borrowers don't repay their loans. It's not insurance for regulatory, process, regulatory purposes, I have to make that clear. But conceptually, it's very easy to think about it like insurance. Um, and so really what you're doing is you're you know, writing a list. These are the loans that I want protected. Will you protect those loans for me? So it is actually a simple transaction to document, and it's a simple transaction from the bank's perspective to execute and implement. And that is really one of its great sales pitches, and I think it's one of the reasons we're seeing greater uptake within Europe, more and more banks are using this technology, they find it very helpful. And to bring it back to this audience, I think you will see more transactions coming into the market um, for investors to invest in. Um, the last thing I should probably add is that one of the largest investors in this space is, um, is the EIF EIB, part of the EU. Um, they have a mandate to invest in particularly SME transactions uh, going back to funding this real economy. Now, there are many views on the role of EIF and EIB in this market, but they, it would be wrong to do anything other than say they're a very significant player and they certainly have a key role to play um, in some of the smaller jurisdictions with some of the smaller banks and we certainly see their influence and presence in the market coming through. Um, I could continue and, and talk about 
specifically what we see is the impact of COVID on these transactions. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of keen to uh, go back to Oliver and Simeon to see if, you know, they have any further views on this broader market before we perhaps move on to COVID. And, and, and Simon, obviously, interested in your input as well. Oliver, do you want to start on that? So talking about sort of COVID impact on, 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 on your transaction sort of client appetite at the moment. Yeah, that's uh, Simon more than pleased to do. I mean, uh, it's it's still a bit early to say what uh, the COVID impact will will be um, on the portfolios which are already sold and which are already part of a transaction. And there was a lot of uh, there there was a lot of concern how the different moratoria which have been implemented by by certain member states of the EU and and anywhere else um, are affecting these transactions. And it was actually quite helpful. Um, that securitization got a hand from the regulator in the EU, from the from ESMA, actually saying that uh, if receivables are, you know, not paid because there's a, there's a moratorium in, in the respective jurisdiction, that as long as you think uh, that it's going to pay at some stage, you don't have to write it down and 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 and, and, and uh, treat it as a default on the bank's balance sheet, which was which was very welcome. Apart from that, um, Simon slightly touched base on that already, uh, saying that credit insurance uh, plays a, a role in the receivables financing space. And this is basically, if you think about uh, the purchase of the factoring enterprise or, or the securitization vehicle acquiring those receivables, in some cases they, they also buy credit insurance against the default. Um, and um, this credit insurance depends always whether the credit insurance company is willing to, to, to grant this credit insurance. And um, once basically, at, at the moment, the, um, the credit insurance companies are, are still in the game, but um, if that would change in the future, that would be a significant impact on, on your transactions coming to the market. Okay, Simeon, your thoughts, please? Implications of COVID, um, I'll, I'll just restrict myself to making one business observation, which is that, um, and, and, and it's anecdotal, in, in, in many ways I would say that as a business, as a law firm, we have never been busier um, advising clients on working capital facilities through, through this means than we are now. Um, there's been a tremendous rush for finances as well, known and understood, and this has been a particularly hot area. Okay, fine. Thank you very much. So we are almost out of time. So I will um, draw it to a close um, at that point. So the things that I uh, that I take away from this, one is just the sheer variety of techniques, uh, financing techniques that are available that have been set out by Simeon, Oliver, uh, and Jessica. Um, uh, and also that what a, what a dynamic market is, it is. Uh, in other words, this is not a uh, sort of a cookie cutter um, product that is sort of you know, standard uh, standard issuance um, to 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 clients. I think remembering that uh, this is our Cliff uh, Chance on Credit podcast aimed at our buy side clients. Uh, you know, I think what's what's what we've drawn out of this today is is really there are sort of two ways into this. For for for, for uh, an investor, if you like, one is obviously a financing technique for a portfolio company underneath the fund, um, and the other one is obviously as as an investment opportunity because these uh, these funds uh, uh, these financing techniques are, are uh, creating products for 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 acquisition. 
Um, now, um, I will finish by thanking our speakers, so Oliver Cronat, Jessica Littlewood, um, Simeon Radcliffe. Thank you also to, uh, to all of the listeners um, for joining. A recording of this podcast and others in the Clifford Chance on Credit podcast series can be found on the Clifford Chance website. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe by visiting cliffordchance.com and you can also follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you very much.